we are going to talk about the world. And I think of all of the topics in scripture, um, this is one that causes more ambivalence than any other. Do we belong here or do we not? Do we love the world or do we hate the world? So we're ambivalent. Um, belonging here, if you were born somewhere else, how many of you were born somewhere else? Great. You have had the experience of the ambivalence of belonging, of um, trying to figure out what this place is like and how you behave in this place. So I came when I was 14 years old, and I came with my family. We started in Mississauga. I went to a high school called T.L. Kennedy, and they put me in grade 11 instead of grade 9 because they thought the British system was that far ahead. They were wrong, but that's what they did. And I was a skinny kid with a mop of red hair, and I talked funny. And the first day that I was there, the teacher came into the room, and I stood up, because that's what we did in Ireland in a stuffy grammar school. We stood up. The kids laughed at me. All these kids that were two years older than me, bigger than me, laughed as I stood up. And then we moved to Bracebridge, and in the middle of the anxiety of the ambivalence about culture. So that's where I'm headed here. Um, I found a way that I could belong. Um, I loved rugby. It's the best game in the world, right? Uh, I, was, I was tiny, I was fast, and I played wings. So I stayed as far away from the scrum as I possibly could, and I was very fast. So I was on the junior and senior team of the rugby club. I was the captain of the junior team and played on the senior team. And all of a sudden, um, this skinny kid who talked funny was that, that fast rugby player. And I began to feel as though maybe I belong here. Maybe this is a good place to be. I also learned that even though I was small, um, that when you tackle low, it doesn't matter how big they are, they will go down. And the bigger they are, the harder they go down. So they would talk about this kid who talked funny with this mop of red hair um, who was in the wrong grade, but he could take down the biggest people playing uh, against him in rugby. So what I want to talk about is this whole idea of non-anxious ambivalence. So what I want to propose is, is, is kind of a hard idea which is that we actually should be ambivalent about the world. When we look at the teaching of the Bible, we're left with an ambivalence about how we are supposed to relate to the world. How are we supposed to relate to the people of the world? And what is the world system, which we'll get to later on? And the first few months that I was in Canada, I was ambivalent. I was also very anxious in the middle of my ambivalence. I would like us to find a way that we could find our rugby game in which we would be not anxious, non-anxious, while we are ambivalent. How can you be ambivalent about the world in a way that is not anxious, in a way that is peaceful, in a way that is uh, well-informed? That's what we want to talk about. And again, it's in the whole set of... Um, devil flesh and world paradigm that we've been talking about so far 
And when we go to the scriptures and look through the pages of scripture about the world, primarily we go to John 3.16 and we hear something very wonderful. God loved the world so much that he gave his son. So that's a great starting point and ending point. And we know even as we read that, that we're not talking about the world that seems to be in opposition to God, um, the world that is kind of programmed against him, but it's the world of people, that God loves the world of people. He loves us dearly. He also loves everyone who has not come to know him yet dearly, because God is said to love the world so, so much. Jesus, in his high priestly prayer in John 17, um, prayed a prayer for his disciples about the world. And I love studying the passages of scripture, especially the ones that are kind of packed with, with information and direction for us. And in this one, I, I noticed the prepositions. So if you remember grammar from school sometime, uh, the prepositions are important in John 17. So notice what Jesus says. He says, I do not ask you to take them out of the world. So that's one use of a preposition. But to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world. Even as I am not of the world, then we'll talk in a moment just about sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. In those few verses um, is the ambivalence that followers of Jesus properly deal with day by day in their, in their lives. Um, Jesus says about the followers that he's leaving behind that they are not of this world. And, and there's where we might start and say, okay, is that us? Are we people who are not of the world? And depending on your sort of tradition growing up, you would have had different versions of what that means about how you live your life. If we are not of the world, should we basically retreat from the world as much as we can? And I was taught as a young boy that I should stay away from the world and all of its vices, as well as all of its practices that were maybe a little gray, as well as the things that most people enjoy doing, right? So I, I grew up, and Christianity for me was about the things I didn't do, right? What did I not do? I didn't smoke, didn't drink. I didn't go to the cinema, as we used to call it. Um, I didn't go to dances. To this day, I regret that I never learned how to dance. And when Annabeth and I end up someplace where other people are dancing, we try to find an exit as possible, as quickly as possible. Because you didn't do that if you were a Christian. And back in the day, if you wanted to talk about how are you going to be a witness to your neighbor, you would come up with answers like, well, when we drive out of the driveway on Sunday mornings, they know we're going to church. They know where we stand. And if they wanted to know more, they could come to church as well. Um, because in, in the back of all of that is this, we are not of this world. It, it seems like that is saying we don't belong in this world. And then we wonder, well, what are we supposed to do while we're in this world? And so we come up with kind of a theology that says, well, the sooner we can get out of this world, the better. 
the more people we can take with us, the better still. So our lives is to retreat from the world, to stay separate from the world, and to convince other people around us who are in the world that they could also be people not of this world, and we would all go together to get away from this world. There is something really wonky about that. And in, in my later years, I've come to appreciate that God is not throwing this world away. That what God fully intends to do is the, is the full restoration of this world, of which we are part and will be part. And so we still acknowledge that we are not of this world. And so that means that there's an ambivalence that says, God loves this world of people. God is not done with this world as a planet. But we are kind of of a character that belong to what is going to come about rather than what is now, if we can kind of get our heads around that. And Jesus says, I don't want you to take them out of the world, but I want you to keep them from the evil one. So that brings us back to where we started, um, the whole acknowledgement that there is a being called the devil who is the father of lies, and his MO is the use of lies, of half-truths, of untruths, and we find ourselves um, kind of enmeshed in the world as a system when we believe the lies that Satan uh, authors and we actually put into practice um, without even knowing that we do um, the tenets of the philosophy and the ideas that Satan is, is spreading around. So Jesus says, I don't want you to take them out of the world, but I want you to keep them from the evil one. It's very important to be able to assure people that Jesus is able to keep us from the evil one. There are people who sometimes have come into my office and said, I'm, I'm pretty sure the devil is in my life. I'm pretty sure that, that the devil has has me for for some reason maybe they believe they've done something or they've been some way that they shouldn't be and they will say so i'm pretty sure the devil has me and i don't think i can get out of his clutch and i need to assure them that it is absolutely possible that the power of god can release us from the devil's um, grasp and can assure us that we are kept from the evil one um, there is no one who is so far beyond the grace of God, so far into the clutch of the devil, that this prayer can't be answered. Everyone is within the reach of the grace, the forgiveness, the mercy of God. But as we carry on in this passage, um, Jesus says, yeah, they're not of this world, and I'm not of this world. And that begins to instruct us a little bit about, well, in what way was Jesus not of this world? Because Jesus did come into this world, he became flesh, he grew up as a child, he taught and worked as an adult, and finally had his life taken away from him. So he was of the world in the sense that he lived in the world. God might have chosen a different vehicle for his redemption. Um, he's God, so he could have done it any way he wanted to. But he has designed the whole economy of, of grace and forgiveness in the face of sin and our fallenness. He has decided that it will be in, in the flesh of a human being, a real human being, that he would do this work. 
And so Jesus was a real human being. Uh, the apostle, to, or the writer to Hebrews says that he was tested, he was tried, uh, he suffered like us every way that we have. And so he has had a full human experience living here on this planet. And so as one who was not of this world, he certainly was in this world, as we are in this world. And then the clincher is at the end of this when Jesus says, and you sent me into the world. If, if this world full of people was a throwaway world, um, maybe that would have already happened, but it didn't happen. You sent me into this world. And our task now is to understand, well, who Jesus was and why he was sent into this world. And then, by extension, who we are and how it is that we have been sent into this world. The heart of this prayer is Jesus saying, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So there's the, the thesis of the book, Live No Lies, uh, that since Satan is the author of all of the lies that have twisted our heads and our lives, um, the truth of God's word, the truth of God, um, needs to be front and center in all that we do. So the scriptures that have been given to us by the Holy Spirit have been given to us so that we can be sanctified, which, which means to be set apart. So Jesus says, I, I don't want you to take them out of this world. I want them to stay in this world. In fact, I've sent them into the world. But I want you to keep them from the clutches of the evil one. And I want you to sanctify them with the truth. Your word is truth. Truth is a word these days that is thrown around very lightly. Um, the proper vernacular is that, you know, my truth is. And my truth has become um, kind of the uh, fault-free, fail-free claim that a person can make. And so we can have completely different worldviews and lifestyles. And yet when somebody says, well, my truth is, well, then it's hands off. You're not allowed to say anything back to my truth being. And then we had a president south of us who all of a sudden made truth an absolute commodity to be used. Um, st statements of fact uh, were spun as somebody's false story. Um, and, and truth, it just sort of vaporized. And we live in a world where the pursuit of truth is kind of not there anymore. Um, all the things that we used to hold dear um, related to knowledge and science um, have become suspect because we were looking for the truth. And that was what a university was supposed to be. It was the place where truth was searched for and truth could be found and truth could be explained. And now we are not there. We are in a place where truth has become more vaporous and living in the middle of all of that, um, not only have we believed lies, but we're not even sure what true is. We're not sure what truth is. So that it's elusive if we even begin on this search for true things or truth or the right thing or the right way. And Jesus comes right into the middle of that and he says about his disciples, they're not of this world. They're of a different kind than this world. But I want you to not take them out. I want you to mobilize them in the world 
just as you have mobilized me, but by sanctifying them with your truth, they will be well armed to be present in the world. So how do we find our rugby game? We find our rugby game in, in scripture. Um, we find that it is a, a bedrock for what we believe. Now we have all kinds of views of the nature of literature that, that scripture is. Um, and we have all kinds of views about how to interpret different parts of scripture. But scripture itself is inspired by God, delivered to us um, under the control, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And it is something we can get a hold of and we can form our lives around and on um, its, its bases. Uh, various parts of scripture have various uses in our lives. The book of Psalms is a book that um, summertime is often a great read for us. Um, Psalms just are poetry. They're like words that could be sung. They're words that could be spun um, in the very best sense of that. And we find our, our kind of our emotional selves filled as we meditate on scripture. Um, we go to the book of Ecclesiastes and we find stuff that was written thousands of years ago that is absolutely relevant today. It's still the same way. We are still the same kinds of beings as were described in the book of Ecclesiastes. If we're in the middle of incredibly hard times, the book of Job is a comfort to us because here's a guy um, who endured every kind of hardship, every kind of dilemma, every kind of tragedy that humans ever have. And yet at the end of it all, he was still trusting God and was still holding on and pressing forward. I have a friend who has gone through incredible turmoil in his life. He was a missionary, and as a missionary, he fell out of favor with the organization that he was serving with. Um, in, in my view, for um, no good reason, uh, he was a little bit off where they wanted him to be in terms of being a very strict, reformed theologian kind of guy working in South African countries. Um, and, and so they fired him. And then along with his having been fired, uh, he was diagnosed with a condition called stiff man's syndrome, by which his body just basically will not respond. And he's in hospital once a month, pretty much for the rest of his life, as he tries to get his way through this. Um, one of the joys of his life was his son, who was a Marine staff sergeant, um, and two Marines came to Mixed Door a few weeks ago and said that um, Adam had been found dead in his room. And Mick emailed me and said, is God loving? Is God even good? Question mark. Um, but he came to the answer after that, that God is both, um, that the world is broken, that we are fallen, but that God is good, and God will, at the end, um, bring all things about that he has promised to. And so, um, you know, my friends can hold on to the fact that there is a place called heaven, there is a reunion that is still future for us, and that's on the bedrock of Scripture because nothing else would support him through, you know, the, the terrible turns of life except to hold on to something that is absolutely true, absolutely 
um, rock-like in its nature, in its character to us. So what do we think of the world? Well, it's a good question, and we're somewhat ambivalent. But are we anxious in our ambivalence? Um, many times we are. We're, we're not quite sure what to do about the world. Um, we do know that sometimes we can be drawn into the world in the sense that the world has believed lies and the world system uh, supports those lies and leads people to live as though those lies were true. Um, so we need to come back and examine ourselves and say, well, what I'm believing these days, what I'm doing these days, um, is there something about them that can be tracked back to lies that I should not be believing? And then how can I get myself to the place where I'm not believing those lies and I can be in the world, among the world, without being drawn into those aspects of the world system um, that have succumbed to the lies of the enemy? And the answer about that is scripture. And as we have begun to say, it's about practicing the ways um, that those people who have followed Christ for millennia have discovered um, to give them the place of safety, the place of being sanctified when they have practiced disciplines like silence and solitude. And in a great summer season like this, we should all find ways um, to slow way down and find the place, the space, the ways, the kind of materials uh, in which we can slow down and listen, find ourselves um, able to be alone and listen to what God has to say to us. How does God talk to us? More often than not, it's through the very words of Scripture that he will just say into your mind. And I know that that happens for you as it does for me. I know that you go through the kind of mental gymnastics of asking, well, why did I think of that scripture verse? Who told me that scripture verse? Um, I, I've even asked myself, did the devil tell me that? Because he can use scripture. He did with uh, the temptations of Jesus. Um, but Jesus retorted with the words of scripture. And my early morning dialogues are often, who said that? Was it me? Was it just my head talking back? Was, was it because I've been programmed so long in Scripture that it's, it's kind of there? Or when I press it through and I ask, why would that either be um, sourced in the devil or demons or my own flesh or my own um, lousy human rationale, uh, why would it be when it seems to be so germane to what I'm thinking about, what I'm meditating about, what I'm asking God about? And when I sort of clear off all those other things and say, you know what, I think, I think maybe that was God. Um, when people say, God told me something, we all kind of go, oh, sure, yeah. Well, well, he does. It would be quite unnatural for him not to talk back, right? If you talk to somebody and they don't talk back, you kind of say, well, are we having a conversation or is it a monologue? So when we talk to God, it ought not to surprise us that he talks back, right? You have to agree with me on that, don't you? That God likely talks to us. I'm sure he wants to. And many times he would like us to be quiet long enough so that we would listen. We feel like we ask God for his presence and then we never ask him what he wants to say. 
So we need to practice the disciplines that we're, we're going to develop over the next several months uh, and learn ways that we can live into the ways of Jesus. So I wanted to leave enough time for us to ask questions or make comments on all of this. So on the matter of the world and our proper ambivalence, uh, is it non-anxious ambivalence? It should be, and we should strive for that if there's any striving to be had.